Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. administrative static the john vecchioni half of the equation is on vacation this week so i am joined uh, by my uh, litigation colleague here at the new civil liberties alliance janine Eunice. janine welcome back to the program thank you so much and i have invited uh, janine uh, with us uh, for two segments today i want to talk about uh, a couple of issues related uh, to uh, to vaccines but the first one really relates to the social media censorship around uh, the vaccine uh, issue. I understand, Janine, that uh, you have filed a lawsuit uh, this past week or have joined a lawsuit filed by the Attorneys General of Missouri and Louisiana against President Biden and a whole host of federal officials. I see uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, HHS Secretary Javier Becerra, Anthony Fauci, uh, I, it seems like you've covered the ground here in terms of, of who, to, who to sue. Nina Jankowitz, the, uh, the, the, the short period uh, that she was in head of the, of the, uh, the what was it, the, the DGB, right? The Disinformation Governance Board, yeah, is that, is that that's right? that's right, yep. <laughs> so tell me about this, this lawsuit and, and why, you have, uh, why you have joined in with these state uh, attorneys general. So this lawsuit argues that the, a lot of the censorship occurring on social media is actually being done at the behest of the federal government, which makes it constant. Uh, there are constitutional issues raised then First Amendment, really, because the government can't um, be involved in silencing the perspectives of dissenters, those who dissent from the government's viewpoint or, or um, you know, spread what they're calling misinformation, which is a term that they're using in order to silence people who disagree with them. Uh, I think this is really important and it will actually relate to what we talk about later. Um, Americans really aren't getting a uh, um, balanced a balanced view, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the voice and so the four plaintiffs that are joining here are Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Kuhldorf, Aaron Cariotti, and uh, Jill Hines. And the first two were authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which uh, was written almost two years ago and called for what was called focus protection instead of across the board lockdowns, arguing that the harms being done to especially younger people were, um, it didn't, it, lockdowns didn't make sense because right. they're very low risk for the Doing virus. Doing more harm than yeah. good. Exactly, exactly. And there was a coordinated effort by federal government officials like Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci to make sure Americans didn't hear about that. Uh, so the, you know, and th those, efforts were revealed in emails actually that are part of the lawsuit. Specifically the Great Barrington Declaration, right. they, they, there was a concerted effort by the federal government to, uh, to de-platform anyone who was touting that declaration specifically or the views expressed in that declaration. Exactly. Um, and another uh, thing that was censored was the, the two of them had a discussion with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, about uh, they started talking about masking of children and they were saying that they thought that the harms outweighed the benefits. Uh, that video was taken down from YouTube, and apparently also the, the government was involved in that. 
Um, and you know, th these are two of the top epidemiologists in the world, what you're, right. the, the idea that- International <laughs> experts in their field. Right, right. And the idea that uh, Francis Collins, Anthony Fauci, and other people in the federal government were making sure that Americans couldn't hear their voices is I think quite shocking. It is shocking. And, and Jay Bhattacharya, I believe, is at Stanford Medical that's School. Right. Is that right? And, that's right. And Martin Kulberg was at, at Harvard at the time? Yes, that's right. He uh, recently departed. But um, so this lawsuit alleges, well, our portion of the lawsuit is really about this COVID-19 misinformation. The lawsuit uh, brought by the Missouri and Louisiana attorneys general is actually broader and covers censorship of more types of misinformation. And we're actually almost every day, or maybe that's an exaggeration, but every week we're learning more and more about just how involved the federal government has been in censoring um, Americans whose voices uh, they think shouldn't be heard. Yes, and I mean the the insidiousness of this censorship is is quite shocking, uh, I think. But just just to underscore what you said uh, a minute ago, everyone agrees that if the federal government were doing this directly, if they were going into Dr. Bhattacharya's office and putting a piece of duct tape over his mouth and saying, you, know, you can't talk about this, I'm exaggerating slightly. But if they were directly forbidding it somehow, everyone agrees that would be a First Amendment violation. Right. But what the federal government has done instead is surreptitiously, they've been working with, let's be clear about who we're talking about here, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, the major social media platforms, they've been, they've been telling them, you need to pull this material off of your platforms. And your position, NCLA's position is, that also violates the First Amendment because the federal government can't do indirectly what the First Amendment forbids it from doing directly. Is that is that that's, a fair way to put it? That's exactly right. And so that was the hurdle or the obstacle that we faced in a similar lawsuit that we brought a little bit earlier, uh, Cengizi versus the Department of Health and Human Services. The judge in that case basically said, well, these companies were censoring some in misinformation before you allege that the federal government became involved. Um, so you can't prove that your plaintiffs were censored because of the government. Even I, though the amount of censorship went up dramatically. Dramatically. That's right. Um, and it's also worth noting the new lawsuit brings in more uh, information that we didn't actually have about this having started earlier. So it actually, you know, I, I mean, before really the end of 2020, there was not much censorship at all. And it's it's escalated dramatically. And also, it's... Did, did something happen in early 2021? <laughs> I'm trying to Oh, yeah. I, I think there might have been a change of administration in January of 2021. Exactly. And well, and, and as the Missouri uh, lawsuit alleges, this was actually going on even before Biden took office and even before he won as a candidate, he was sort of starting to work with these companies and to pressure them. And I think one of the big questions that... Ironically, that's not illegal. Right, because right. Because he wouldn't have had any federal power at that point, at least you know, in theory. But Right. I, I think one of the big questions that... Um, this lawsuit will raise and I hope is answered in our favor is whether, you know, if the tech companies are doing this voluntarily, because that's one of the allegations, well, they, they are, they want to further the federal government's aim, you know, they're all sort of politically aligned, they're just doing this voluntarily. I think that should be rejected, first of all, because there's an inherent power imbalance. I mean, the federal government has the ability to punish these companies, it's threatened to do so. I was so. going to say, it's, yeah. it's actively <laughs> threatening them if they don't cooperate. So they might say, oh, we're doing it voluntarily, but that's that's sort of like the person who you know that's like the hostage who's reading the document on camera and you don't see the gun you know off camera uh, while they're you know while they're reading this message it seems to me that, that may be overstating the case slightly but they're definitely uh, there's duress here whether they would do it without the duress or not we don't know because we haven't seen it without the duress but certainly right. we know that the amount of censorship has gone up dramatically 
when the duress was applied. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so hopefully, you know, well, the court has already sort of rejected that argument in Louisiana. Um, so if the court ordered discovery. The federal district court. Yeah, there. exactly. Uh, in the Western District of Louisiana. The court ordered discovery. It's, it rejected um, the government's argument that succeeded in the Cengizi case that, you know, we just couldn't prove that the plaintiffs had been censored because of the government. Let's talk about the, the various kinds of censorship, Janine, that, that's taking place here. We have complete bans temporary bans, shadow bans. What's a shadow ban? That may not be a term that yeah. our audience is familiar with. Yeah, so a shadow ban is where you're uh, sort of deplatformed. The algorithm makes it so that your account, your tweets or your posts are seen less. Uh, they have less of an audience. One of our clients in Changizi actually, who's, who's a theoretical cognitive scientist. Um, Sounds like a smart guy. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Hardly some uh, <laughs> fringe guy, uh, well, so his um, everything that he tweets when the user tries to look at it, it said it's labeled sensitive content the way that pornography is. Um, so you have to click through another thing to see it, which click just through means, the warning label. Exactly. So so that makes your account less effective. It has less of a reach. And, um, you know, people should really not underestimate how important these social media accounts are, that this is where it's, a lot of the dialogue is taking place about our policies. It's the modern public square, yeah, right? Exactly. And so you have de-boosting, de-platform, demonetizing, mm -hmm. are, are these all ways of, of, are these all similar to shadow? Uh, demonetizing, I guess, means you no longer get paid for clicks yeah. that appear on your account. I yeah. assume that's important to some folks on these platforms. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so there are all these various ways. And then there are, I mean, there are more obvious ways, tweets or posts being labeled misleading um, and then being suspended. And so, so some of, uh, not, not the clients in the Missouri case, but in our Changizi case, some of the people just lost their accounts entirely. Just temporarily or permanently suspended from the platform. Exactly. Not allowed to to continue with the audience of, by the way, an audience of voluntary followers that they have built up. Yeah. <laughs> you have this third party come in at the behest of the government say, saying, Gene, uh, what are you up to? 90,000 followers <laughs> on, on Twitter, something yeah. like that. Your 90,000 followers aren't allowed to listen to you yeah. anymore is what Twitter would be saying at, and the government would be saying that. I mean, exactly. this is, this is, uh, this is the kind of thing that totalitarian governments do. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, corollary of the First Amendment right to speak is also the right to listen, to be heard, and to get information. And so Americans, all Americans, are being deprived of that right by this censorship because you're not able to hear the voices of the people who are being censored at the behest of the federal government. It absolutely strikes at the heart of the First Amendment. And I think one of the things that makes this so insidious is that you don't even know necessarily mm -hmm. if it's being censored. Now, if you were permanently uh, banned from Twitter, I think your 90,000 yeah. followers would, would notice that. Yeah. But if you were being shadow banned, if if your content was being de-boosted, if folks uh, who ordinarily, if they put in Janine Yunus and vaccine mandate, if ordinarily a certain thing would come up, but the algorithm now makes that material not come up, there's right. no way for them to know that that's right. happening, right? Right. And that actually happened to uh, Mark Chang Yeezy. So he didn't realize for quite some time. And then his followers started to alert him that they weren't seeing his posts. So he did a sort of analysis of engagement and he concluded that he had been pretty heavily shadow banned. So, so why are the state attorneys general not pursuing this by themselves? What, what are you, what is NCLA adding to this uh, lawsuit? Well, uh, this, the attorneys general can't represent private individuals. So they um, were seeking for uh, an organization like us to represent them. And since we had done the Changizi case, which was very similar, they thought we were a good fit. I also happen to know. Changizi being <laughs> modest, very similar, <laughs> meaning that, that they borrowed heavily from her Changizi complaint when they filed the one in uh, Louisiana. But, but go ahead. 
No, and it, it actually happened by coincidence that I knew three of the uh, plaintiffs already. So when they had mentioned my name to them, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we want to see all this. You just heard, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and then another component of this, too, is the chilling effect, which, uh, you know, people aren't seeing things or things they fear will get them censored because they don't want to lose their accounts. Absolutely. And this, this is a sweeping campaign. It's the most severe abrogation of the First Amendment that we've seen in modern times. And thank you to for both representing these folks and for coming on our program. Welcome back to Administrative Static. I'm Mark Chenoweth, uh, here with Janine Yunus uh, today, Litigation Counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. And I've asked Janine to stick around for a second segment with our audience because it's been about a year, Janine, that you've been working on these vaccine mandate cases, pushing back against uh, the federal government, state governments, state universities, other public entities uh, who have, who, who decided that even after saying that there wouldn't be vaccine mandates, I think President Biden said that in December of 2020, shortly after uh, his election, uh, started putting out these mandates and in, in, in both direct ways, primarily at the state and local level. And then the federal government, the CDC does not have rulemaking power, which I think is something people forget. It, the Congress of the United States deliberately did not give the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention rulemaking power. You sure wouldn't know it from the last two years. Because when the CDC speaks, people listen. It's like, uh, this is before your time, uh, but the old E.F. Hutton commercials, uh, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Well, when the CDC talks, people listen. And, and Janine, the, the CDC has used that power the last year or two. Uh, you know, we, we sued them over the nationwide eviction moratorium, ultimately successfully, a couple of years ago. This past year, it's been all of this guidance that CDC has put out suggesting that different people needed to get the vaccine and other folks have jumped on that and have turned that guidance uh, in into mandates. So I, I just wanted to ask you to reflect. I'll start with a very broad question. Just reflect on, on the last year. Uh, in retrospect, what what should we have seen coming maybe that we didn't see coming? What uh, you know, what's your what's your reaction to all of this that's that's gone on? Well, I was a little bit overly optimistic about uh, the success of vaccine mandates at the state level, of those coming from state uh, governments or local um, government bodies, including uh, public universities. I actually thought that courts would see that this was highly problematic and unconstitutional because the vaccine had not been around very long. And actually, when we began this, the vaccine was only under EUA emergency use authorization. Um, approval. So that means it didn't have the full, uh, it didn't have full FDA approval. Didn't have full FDA approval. And even now we've talked about on this program, the fact that, that even though something like Comirnaty has been fully FDA approved, if you go in right now and ask for the Pfizer vaccine, you're probably not going to get Comirnaty. It's still the Pfizer BioNTech right. shot that's available right. by and large. Yeah. And we actually don't know. It's, it remains unclear whether they're, they're actually exactly the same. It looks like they may not be. They may have some different um, inactive products, which can affect safety and efficacy. So um, that is a big, I mean, uh, EUA products are not 
deemed safe and effective by the FDA. <laughs> That's right. what it means. So, to so, be even mandating if, so even if community is perfectly safe and there's lots of data showing that community is perfectly safe, if it's not identical to the BioNTech vaccine, then that data isn't necessarily fully reliable. Right. And, you know, we, we can, it's just a sort of ma matter of common logic. You can't know the long-term effects of something that hasn't been around long-term. Something actually Anthony Fauci recognized in 1999. There's a recent video of him in which he's saying, on 60 Minutes or something. Yeah, we shouldn't be uh, mandating vaccines. You know, uh, he was talking about a potential AIDS vaccine or HIV. And he was saying, uh, you know, even if we come up with one, we should be careful about using it sparingly because sometimes side effects, severe side effects manifest after a decade or so. So the fact that these Is same this the people. Same are, man? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, we're not, NCLA and, uh, is not anti-vaccine, I'm not anti-vaccine, but what we're, you know, we're talking about sort of an unprecedented degree of mandating a medical product that a lot of people don't need because they had COVID uh, in many cases, or children uh, who really face a very low risk. And even the New York Times has admitted the Pfizer data shows that the vaccine doesn't appear to provide any benefit in terms of preventing infection in them. So it's all risk. Well, and it seems to go away super fast in these kids yeah. too. So you're yeah. you're putting something experimental experimental in their arm for a fleeting advantage, it seems to me. I mean, I would never, uh, uh, as you said, we're not anti-vax. I'm not anti-vax. I have had uh, the, the vaccine. Uh, I had the Moderna vaccine, uh, but you know, that's the one that happened to be available at the place that I went. Uh, uh, and I've been vaccinated for lots of other things uh, as well over uh, over the years. My dad is a, uh, uh, he's retired now, but my dad was a, was a family physician and we got the full regimen of, of vaccines. I'm not anti-vaccine. That said, I would never give my child this vaccine. I just, the, the, the cost benefit analysis doesn't, no. doesn't map out uh, for, for me. So I'm, I'm a, uh, uh, I guess I guess I would say I'm flabbergasted the extent to which uh, over the last year adults have been willing to put children at the forefront of the experiment. Yeah. That, whether it's schools where you know, teachers have uh, have not wanted to go back to school until the children were vaccinated. I mean, that's that's kind of sick to me, honestly. I the the people who need to be vaccinated are the teachers. And if they want to be vaccinated, great. If they don't want to be vaccinated, it actually doesn't, we've learned that the vaccine doesn't uh, help much, if at all, with transmission to third parties. Right. And that would have been, I, I thought, as soon as we figured that out, I would have thought, well, okay, there goes the rationale for a mandate. But I've been surprised that even that information coming to light hasn't really made yeah. a difference. Well, and actually a funny um, aspect of that is that Jay Bhattacharya, someone who uh, well, I was discussing in the last segment, a plaintiff in the lawsuit, and who's also served as, as an expert in some of our cases, he was saying in June, and he probably knew earlier, I just happened to have him on June a panel, of June or? of 2021, okay. that the vet, he had looked very carefully at the data, the vaccine doesn't appear to stop transmission at all, but he wasn't allowed to say that. <laughs> so uh, people didn't know, people still, I mean, that's still, and there's a, there's a conflation of the concept of stopping transmission versus the benefit to the individual. Um, and right. And, well, and, and, uh, and I think that, that folks, uh, haven't been able to make their own informed decisions because of what we were talking about in the last segment. So much information has been suppressed. That's right. That that's exactly right. And, and, you know, DC is now mandating the vaccine for school children, which is really stunning based, you know, based on the information that we have now about, uh, First of all, the transmission and then the risk benefit analysis or caught, you know, 
I, I'm honestly gobsmacked that they're doing that. And they're not the only ones. There are other school districts around the country that are doing it as well. Why do you think they're doing it, given the state of the science? I mean, even the federal government has come around to admit uh, some of the things that we've been, been saying here, that it doesn't help with transmission, for, for example. So why, why is the D.C. government mandating this well, for children? I spend a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> I think it's politics. Um, you know, what's happened is it's sort of the if you're a good Democrat, you're really pro-vaccine and you want everyone you know to get it, including your kid. It's a way of signaling your allegiance um, to the to the tribe. It's not about science or um, or morality at all. Yeah, or your allegiance to the Royals, apparently. I mean, my, uh, uh, I'm a big uh, Kansas City Royals fan. I grew up in Kansas City, and Whit Merrifield was one of my favorite players. He got traded this week uh, to the Toronto Blue Jays, and and folks were uh, he he did not go to Toronto last month when the Royals played there. Uh, because he was not vaccinated. I think there were 10 members of the Royals uh, who were not vaccinated. And the fan base was all over uh, Witt and the other one. Witt said something like, if, you know, if it made the difference between going to the playoffs or not, then he would, he would get, uh, get the vaccine. And his point was, he cared so much about going to the playoffs that he was willing to take the risk if it made the difference between going to the playoffs. But he gave up something like $186,000 of four days of, of pay in order to not get the vaccine. He obviously thought about it a lot. I mean, people don't, I think, give up that kind of money on the drop of a hat. And yet he was, uh, he was really uh, villainized on, on, uh, on social media. And I, I honestly think it played a, par played a part in the team deciding to, uh, to trade him. Uh, and so it's just what you said. There seems to be this weird sort of, uh, of, uh, of side taking uh, when it comes to the vaccine. Yeah. That's right. The other thing I think that has surprised me, I'd be interested in your perspective on this, is the extent to which the natural immunity piece was controversial. I mean, a year ago, when we started talking about natural immunity, we made the decision at NCLA to represent folks with natural immunity. Those were the, the ones who we thought had the strongest case to avoid vaccine mandates. And uh, we, we saw all sorts of arguments, uh, as, I mean, I guess, shouldn't take social media too seriously, but people were saying, oh, it's made up, right? <laughs> yeah. Or people were pretending like, and, and the federal government would, would be guilty of what I'm about to say, that, suggesting that somehow natural immunity didn't exist in the COVID context, even though it exists for every other virus we've ever That's encountered. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, the New York Times was saying stuff like that, you know, oh, we don't know, this virus is so different. Um, but all the scientists who were looking at it were seeing that people were getting natural immunity. They were uh, had, you know, the the what you would expect in terms of, it's not just antibodies, but T cells and B cells. They were um, generating the same sort of Im immune response. Uh, and you know, the the funniest thing about it was they kept saying things like, "Well, we don't know how long natural immunity lasts." You also didn't know anything about how long immunity from the vaccines lasts. And now we know that immunity from the vaccines actually doesn't last much very long at all. And it's certainly it's, not as long as natural. No, immunity. no. And it appears to be, uh, you know, weaker when it comes to variants and uh, also in terms of preventing severe symptoms, natural immunity appears to be the best. Uh, people are getting reinfected. That's, that's obviously clear, but it's very- Even, even if they have natural immunity, yeah, sometimes they're getting yeah, there are Yeah, there are some reinfections. Particularly with different variants. Exactly. But typically the, um, for, you know, in terms of their own risk, it's a very, usually much more mild symptoms, uh, severe disease rarely happens if you have uh, on your second or third infection. Exactly. Yeah. And yet, uh, so, so what, what do you think drove that disinterest or really, I would say propaganda 
against natural immunity over most of the last year? I don't really know. I mean, it's a bit of a puzzle to me. I imagine, I mean, I'm trying try not to be a conspiracy theorist. I mean, pharma obviously had some money to make off this. <laughs> so, you know, saying we can't rely on natural immunity got Pfizer quite a bit of money. Um, so, so there are uh, corporate interests at play here as well, I think. There are corporate interests. I suppose there are, uh, it, it seemed like the government settled on a simple message of everyone yes. needs a vaccine. And it was That's just true. easier to drive home this everyone needs a vaccine message. And That's I'm not true. sure whether they don't trust Americans to, to figure out. I mean, you and I have, have known people who said that they had had COVID and then it turned out that they yeah. really hadn't had COVID. And so they thought they had natural immunity, but they didn't because they never actually had COVID. But our clients had all been tested. Right. And so we knew that they had the antibodies. Right. And certainly someone that had the antibodies couldn't have been forced to get a vaccine right. now or then. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep talking about this in the future. Thank you for all your